All righty then. So we're in 2 Peter, and I think this is appropriate for our context. Last week we talked about the promises. Uh, I'm going to go back up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these earlier verses. And we're going to get through verse 7 tonight. That's my plan, and we should do that. So there's an introduction in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, and that is a Greek word that means the full knowledge or the true knowledge of Him who called us to or in His own glory and goodness, or by His own glory and goodness could be as well. By which His glory and goodness, that is, He has granted to us His precious and very great, his precious and magnificent promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So we got through that part last week. For this very reason, this is verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Um, and we'll continue on with the rest of those verses, but I, I'm really seriously doubtful I'm going to get past verse 7, so that's why uh, I went ahead and stopped there. <clears throat> so let's go back up to verse 5. For this very reason also, uh, the uh, New American Standard Bible says, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. All right? For what reason? Well, because we've been given the privilege of sharing in the divine nature, his nature within us brings about a transformation that results in a change of character and behavior. So people that just say, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and they just continue living the way they've been living, have not been transformed because that transformation comes from within. It starts inside of you and works through you, right? It's that idea of metamorphosis. So the caterpillar doesn't have to uh, force itself to go through the transformation, but it does have to go through the transformation, right? Starts as the caterpillar, it's got to eat, and it gets in that pupal stage and hangs there, and this transformation takes place inside that pupa, right? And then at the right time, it breaks through, it opens its wings, the wings dry out, and then it can fly. That's awesome. That's classic metamorphosis, transformation, right? So that's happening to you. If you don't see anything happening on the outside, then there's nothing happening on the inside. Christianity is not about feelings, right? Faith is not a feeling. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things uh, that are not seen, right? The evidence of things hoped for, and the 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 overwhelming uh, confidence that we have in things that we can't see with our physical eyes, right? So, um, so the old translation says the, the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not, not seen. That's awesome. That means faith is substantial itself, right? And that's a very important Greek word there. It means the stuff. It is the stuff of what uh, we can't see. So faith is so, so fully reassuring that we walk by faith and not by sight, but we walk as though it already is. 
See, people run around and they're freaking out and they're scared and whatever, and they don't have faith in an almighty God. You don't have faith in a good and loving God. If you're constantly running around afraid, if you're constantly running around worrying, right? If you're filled with strife, we need to continually turn our mind back up, right? It's the message I preached a couple of weeks ago, all right? You know, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Keep seeking the things that are above, not earthly things. But we keep our minds so pinned to the ground that we refuse to receive that assurance, that confidence from the Lord, right? But we have that because we have access to his nature. That's, that's the stuff of holiness. And this process of becoming more like Jesus, we call sanctification, right? Um, so we do retain an independent capacity to will right or wrong. God doesn't take away your will. Right? So just because you become a Christian and that transformation is taking place doesn't mean he removes your independent will or you would cease to become you. So you and I can become Christ-like and become more and more Christ-like, but I'm still me and you're still you. And we all fulfill those, those parts of the body of Christ and we grow up into the head who is Christ. Right? But there is an internal transformation that is taking place, a change of heart and a change of mind that results in a change of action. So we have to choose to elect, um, to deliberately cooperate with Christ's indwelling presence in order for that transformation to move itself to the outside, to take place comprehensively, right? To be more than me and Jesus and having happy time, right? If I'm going to be the soul and your soul extends into the world that Christ created me to be, then I have to cooperate with him. I have to align my will with his will. Um, in Weiss' word studies uh, from the Greek New Testament, uh, Weiss writes, the divine nature is not an automatic self-propelling machine that will turn out a Christian life for the believer irrespective of what that believer does or the attitude he takes to the salvation which God has provided. The divine nature will always produce a change in the life of the sinner who receives the Lord Jesus as Savior, but it works at its best efficiency when the believer cooperates with it in not only determining to live a life pleasing to God, but definitely stepping out in faith and living that life in dependence upon the new life which God has implanted in him. And this must not be a mere lackadaisical attempt at doing God's will, but an intense effort as shown by the word spude. I love this word. It's a weird word to say. Say spude. That's the Greek word. That's the word that is translated, uh, NASB, applying all diligence. In the ESV, make every effort. You know what, what my synonym for spude is in, in English? Hustle. You know what hustle is? That's probably an old guy term, right? So my coaches used to say, come on, Hall, hustle, hustle. Get up there and hustle. You know, because your typical kid out there on baseball field dragging along, you know, okay, we don't want to practice. We just want to play the game. But you got to hustle. So when we were coming in off the field, we're out there taking our positions. I was taking my customary position in right field because I'm a lefty and also because I'm lousy, right? 
And you always, pretty much always put your worst player in right field because fewer balls get hit out there. And I will admit that many times I was in right field praying that the ball would not be hit to me. <laughs> no, Lord, I don't want the ball. Actually, I probably didn't say that because I didn't have a relationship with the Lord at the time. You know, but I might have said, please, 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 God, don't let the ball be hit to me. But nonetheless, the coach expected you to get up and run in. You hustle. You didn't just walk in, walk around. Well, this is kind of what I promote in the dojo. I really don't use that term hustle, but I don't let these kids sit on this stage, right? Unless we are doing something that requires them to pay attention, I don't let them sit in class. We don't sit. We do. Guess what? That's your faith. And there's too many Christians that are just sitting around. Well, I'm saved by grace. I guess that means I'm just going to sit around and do nothing. And boy, there's a lot of Christians who do a whole lot of nothing. We need to apply some hustle to our faith, right? Johnny on the spot hustle. Get up and run. Get up and move, right? I'm going to quote this quote again, and I'm going to wear it out, and eventually you're going to remember it. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. I'm not trying to earn my way into heaven. I'm not trying to work my way in. I've already got a spot. That happened because Jesus died on the cross for me. That happened because Jesus died on the cross for you. But that doesn't mean that I just sit on my blessed assurance and do nothing. I need to get up and I need to move and I need to work. Hey, work is a four-letter word, but it's not a bad one. All right? All right, I like, uh, and, and you know, I had forgotten that I used this illustration back when I, I, I did these notes. I did these notes a decade ago. I touched them up today. But uh, this idea of us cooperating with God, I liken to actors in a play. Now, I've written a lot of plays, right? Um, and, you know, we filmed a couple of them, um, but mainly we did these mobile dramas. We Every year during House of Judgment, usually it was a decade or more ago. Uh, well, actually more than that now. Gosh, it's how, where are we at? 2010. I think 2008 was the last time we did something in here. So a dozen or so years ago, this time of year, we would be doing nothing but rehearsing. Every night we would have rehearsals, 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 right? So I would write a play. We would rehearse the play. And then... Uh, we would do, I call it a mobile drama. That doesn't sound very entertaining, but it was called House of Judgment. Well, pretty much everybody in Garland and Richardson and Rowlett and really many people in Dallas and people all the way as far as Oklahoma and, and Arkansas, I mean, people all over had come to see this thing. We had thousands of people come through and see it. So I'd write a story. The story always concerned teenagers. I was a youth minister. Teenagers are in the, cross, uh, the crosshairs of making decisions in their lives that will turn concrete, right? Uh, you know, there is a reason why we say that, that, you know, they're at an impressionable age because everything that happens, you know, you probably remember a lot about being a teenager. Your, your brain is in formation then. When, when we're little, like these guys right here, things that happen to us are, are impressionable, but we don't really remember them. Like, I don't remember a whole lot that was going on before I was about, I don't know, eight, nine. It's just happened, you know? You remember really bad things or really good things. That's pretty much it. But teenage years, yeah, I remember way too much of that drama. Okay. 
So I always wrote about the, these plays, I wrote about consequences. They were always about the consequences of your actions, the earthly and eternal consequences of your actions, right? So you write that play, and then the, the writer may or may not direct the play. In, the, in my case, I did. I directed the play. You, you recruit these actors, you cast them, you write it, you direct it. But you know what? Once they get on stage, that's it. You can't do anything. They're performing. You can't, ah, cut, cut, stop. No, I didn't say that. And why did you change that line? And the blocking was this way. No, once you've given it to them and they're up on stage, it's theirs. You've given them everything. Are you filling in the, the, the gaps here? The, the earlier verse said he has given us, verse 3, he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. God's written the play. You've been cast. You may or may not fully understand your part yet, right? But he's written the play. You may not even know all the lines. I know with some of these uh, movies that they, that they do, they don't even want the actors to know the ending because, you know, it might be like a sequel and everybody's like, ooh, what's going to happen? And we don't know. And if you get actors like, uh, apparently this, this latest Spider-Man kid, uh, whatever his name is, Tom something or another, uh, was really bad about leaking things about, I've seen all of these, these YouTube videos where he's, you know, being interviewed and he's like, oh, this happens and that happens. And they're like, shh, you know, he's like, oh, oh, he's like, I wasn't supposed to say that. So a lot of times what they would do is they would not tell these actors what was going to happen next. They would just give them their part, give them this many lines, say this is what you're going to do, and then let them respond. So I remember the, um, I'm not a, not a horror movie guy, and I, I really, really want you to reconsider if you are. Faith is the opposite of fear, and horror is designed to inspire fear. Fear attracts Satan, faith attracts God. Figure it out, right? But I like thrillers. I like, I like movies that make you think and, and make you go, oh, man, you know, but not these bloody whatever. But uh, early on, when I was making up my mind about all these things, the very first Alien movie came out, all right, the first one. Now, there's been a million of them, and they've, been, they've just gotten, they just got stupid there toward the end, Right? Basically, from the second one on, they just started getting like cartoonishly ridiculous. And like the second one was just like aliens splattering all over the place. You know, I was like, okay, that's that wasn't the first one. The first one was pretty much them trapped on a ship with this alien, right? That came out of a guy. We didn't know anything about this, right? So now it's, you know, it's like almost part of our culture. You know, this, this thing attaches itself to his face and it, you know, plugs its offspring into, you know, the middle of his stomach and you know, somehow it feeds on the interior of him and then at the right time it bursts through his stomach. The actors didn't even know that this was going to happen. When you see it filmed, that's the first time they saw that. They had the whole thing set up and the guy was, you know, freaking out on the table, whatever, and then when the little alien burst through, they didn't even know. That's kind of like you and I, right? God knows what's going on. He's written the play. But stuff is going to happen in that play. You have a role. You have a responsibility, right? And what we need to do is we need to learn to cooperate. I'm not playing somebody else's part. 
So what happens? You know, I get cast as this guy, but I'm like, well, I would rather be Spider-Man. I don't want to be, you know, the guy with the bow and arrow. His character is stupid. I want to be Spider-Man. So as soon as I get up on stage, I keep trying to act like Spider-Man. What a terrible movie, right? The guy with the bow and arrow is great, whatever his name is. I don't know what his name is. But anyway, he's great, but he'd make a terrible Spider-Man, you know? I mean, you know, what if you switched, uh, if you switched Robert Downey Jr.'s role as Iron Man with Spider-Man? Well, that wouldn't work. Although, if you know anything about Robert Downey Jr., he was a child actor. He really was. So maybe way back in the day, you know, he would have been a sassy mouse Spider-Man, all right? But nonetheless, God's given you a role, right? He's given you, a, and that's part of his, his kingdom. Now, your responsibility is to cooperate with him. You have to get up on stage. And what, now, what if I'm lazy? I'm like, oh, good, I got a part. I'm not going to rehearsals, though. I'm not going to memorize those lines. What's that? That's, that's too much work. I'm not memorizing any lines. Listen, just tell me when the play is, and I'll just get up there and play the, the role. That's kind of how people are, right? But we're, we're told to apply diligence to our faith, right? So now let's, let's, uh, let's flip it, okay? We're applying hustle to our faith. So where are we hustling to? What are we hustling toward? So when I sent out the, um, the text for today... Um, I talked, uh, I, I think I said, uh, the stairway to spiritual success is the way I said it. So what we have next are what are called, uh, I don't, I'm not even sure how to pronounce this word. It's S-O-R-I-T-E-S, sorites or sorites. But this is a series, a series of moral characteristics, one that follows on the heels of another. It was very common in the ancient world to give these lists, and we're talking pagan religions did it, philosophies did it, right? There's a, there's a lot of influence from Stoicism that is evident in Second Peter. Now, I believe Peter wasn't trying to import Stoicism into Christianity, but you can even see a little bit of uh, uh, Stoicism influencing some of the things that Paul said, but they're using the, the language and the imagery of their day. And Stoicism was a very important philosophy in their day, okay? So uh, a famous emperor of Rome who was a Stoic is Marcus Aurelius, right? Any of you ever, uh, what was the, uh, the movie that Russell Crowe was in with Maximus? Uh, uh, Gladiator. 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 Yeah, so... So Maximus gets, you know, he, he's on the outs with the, the next emperor, emperor Commodus, which by the way, Commodus, you can remember Commodus, because after Commodus came to the throne, the Roman Empire went down the toilet. Commodus, commode, toilet. Okay. Um, literally. And, uh, but Marcus Aurelius was, was a Stoic, uh, he was a follower of Stoic philosophy. He actually wrote Stoic philosophy. So there's a, there's a line where uh, Russell Crowe kind of drifts into his Aussie accent when he's talking to the guy that is the head of the gladiators, you know, who's telling him that Marcus Aurelius was the one that freed him and gave him this wooden sword. And Maximus was like Marcus Aurelius's adopted son, essentially. When Marcus Aurelius died, that's why the, the actual blood son wanted to put him away. And Russell Crowe's character, Maximus, says, you knew Marcus Aurelius, right? So Marcus Aurelius wrote Stoic philosophy. What I'm trying to get at is that all through this period, this type of philosophy was important. It was a very morally oriented type of philosophy. Now, 
Understand, what I've said before is true. Our, our salvation comes from faith, right? And we are upheld by faith, and we pursue God by faith. So it's faith from beginning to end, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, uh, the power of salvation for all those who believe, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just or the righteous will live by faith, right? So the gospel is always from faith to faith. But what's in between? What is, is being built with this faith? Well, Peter uses these sorites, right? These moral characteristics that follow one after the other to help us understand what we're doing. So <coughs> I want you to look at each of these and I want you to apply this to yourself and kind of see where you're at. What step are you on, right? So let's look at them uh, all together, and then I'll take them apart. For this very reason, make every effort. Once again, you need to make effort. Uh, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Make every effort to supplement or supply your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection or brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness with love. Right? So let's look at this first one. This is a biggie. This is a biggie in moral philosophy. Um, moral excellence is how it is being um, translated in the New American Standard Bible. In the ESV, it is translated virtue. Um, in the Greek, to develop virtue in the exercise of another, an increase by growth, not by external junction, each new grace springing out of the attempt and the perfecting of the other. That's what Vincent says about this, right? So he says to supply moral excellence. So this is the word that's used again and again, supply, 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 supply. Um, this word is derived uh, from a Greek word that means uh, chorus. In fact, it's it's the cognate for the English word chorus. It's choros, right? And it was employed in the representation of Greek tragedies. So there you go. I have a, a backing for my idea of using a play for this. The verb originally means to bear the expense of a chorus, which was done by a person selected by the state who was obliged to defray all the expenses of training and maintenance. In the New Testament, the word has lost this technical sense and is used in the general sense of supplying or providing. So these are things that you actually do. You supply. You're paying for this. Not with you know, your own effort alone. The Lord is giving you the strength and the motivation, but you have to actually do something, right? Um, I want you to notice that throughout uh, the, the statement, there's no appeal to the Jewish law, not even to the Ten Commandments, because the letter is written to people in a secular society, and these categories of morality were understood by the Greco-Roman culture of the day, and they're used to communicate God's expectations for conduct. It's not just about keeping external rules, in other words. This is about character. These are all character qualities. This is what needs to flow out of you, right? This is not what you do in front of everybody else to make everybody happy. This is not what you do to try to make God happy. This is what you 
are. This is really and truly what you are on the inside. The law is written on the conscience of every human being, even though it has been defaced by the fall and obfuscated by satanic influences. Right and wrong remain intuitively recognizable by us as long as the conscience is intact. Listen to what Romans says, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, um, I believe that the conscience was necessitated and inaugurated when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for at that point, the human race was, would be separated from God and his guidance. Now, all that we will do, independent of God, is either defended or condemned, right? Sadly, the last days in which we live are evil days. Would you agree? We live in a world dominated by the devil. From our youth, the secular system of education and the entertainment industry are used for enculturation and indoctrination. Satan appeals to original sin hiding deep within every human being, right? Within every human heart. Original sin, what? What is that? Selfishness, pride, right? Rebellion. Even the church has departed from historic Orthodox faith in the biblical Jesus, presumably to remain in harmony with the world. Now, the example, I gave these examples 10 years ago. Examples are Episcopalians electing and consecrating an openly gay bishop, V. Jean Robinson, in 2003, and electing lesbian Mary Glasspool to the same position in December of 2009. The church has gone far, far away from that. I mean, much deeper into this whole, whole thing now. Um, back then, this is again a decade ago, Royal Lane Baptist Church in Dallas changed their website to advertise acceptance of homosexuals. Well, that was unusual then, not unusual now, right? This accommodation is going on all around us. The Disciples of Christ, uh, there's a Disciples of Christ church right around the corner. They usually just call themselves Christian, right? But their symbol is a cup, a, a chalice, like a Lord's Supper cup with a, a, a cross inside of it. Right? That's disciples of Christ. Um, they publicized that you don't have to confess Jesus as Lord to be a part of their church. That's the fundamental confession of the Christian faith. I was listening to uh, a lady speak on a YouTube video the other day who had left a more liberal church. And she said the reason that she left this church was a, a large church. I don't even know which one it was. But she said the reason that she left this church is because the pastor started calling himself an agnostic. An agnostic is somebody who doesn't know if they have faith. This is the pastor. If you have doubts, you don't be the pastor any longer. But he basically just guided the entire church into this moral swamp, right? And I say moral because when you deny the deity of Christ, when you deny the existence of God, you end up in a moral swamp because you end up uh, following the culture, not Christ. And that's exactly what we see going on today. If you're going to continue to be a biblical Christian today, you're going to be increasingly in opposition to the dominant culture. Now listen, I'm not talking about the lefties, right? I'm also talking about a lot of the shenanigans that are going on on the right as well, okay? Trump is not the Messiah, 
I'm sorry. I already told you, I, I, I've told you guys, I'm going to plug my nose and I'm going to vote for the guy, but the reality is he's got issues, right? So we just say, what is the lesser of two evils? And far and away, he's the lesser of two evils. I think he's a pit bull that the Lord put in office to keep the left at bay. But you don't want to be following this guy's example and calling all of your opponents names. Right? He's got a name for everybody. That's, that's, not the, that's not the Lord. That's not scripture. We don't call people names. We don't make up stuff about people and call them names and, 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 and spread hatred. We don't do that. That's not Christian. That's not godly. And, of course, this is what causes those on the other side to accuse him and say, well, you know, if you're supporting him, you don't support love and all this other stuff. I'm trying to help you to understand that if you uphold a biblical faith, you're not going to make anybody happy. You're, you're not going to be fully a, uh, you know, a Trump supporter, you're not going to be fully uh, on the left either. You're just going to be a, a follower of Jesus, and you're going to be willing to say, well, that's right, that's good, that's helpful, that's not. Rather than just saying, ah, you know, I'm just him, I'm just a ditto head. I'll just say what he says, okay? That's not us. Um, this is what the scripture says in First Timothy about the latter times that we're in. Now, the spiritly expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Then in Romans 1, 24 and 25, the apostle Paul writes, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So as a result, we need to supply, first of all, virtue. Now, we finally got to this word. This is the Greek word arete, right? Um, in classical Greek literature, uh, this is from the lexicon. We can pick out a single basic, uh, we can pick out a single basic meaning. It might be rendered eminence. It can refer to excellence of achievement to mastery in a specific field on, on the one side or to endowment with higher power on the other or often both together. Thus, a happy destiny is the result of fine achievement. So arete thus came to be linked with power, dunamis, as a more comprehensive synonym in relation to powerful divine operation. We've already seen that God has... Uh, his divine power, it says in verse 3, has granted to us all things that per pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us to or in his own glory and excellence. And that word excellence is the same word. So the idea of power is impregnated in this, uh, this word arete, which by the way, in case you're wondering, that is the word that is being translated here, virtue. Now virtue just sounds kind of like a sort of a, you know, a nice guy word. Well, you are very virtuous, aren't you? <laughs> that means you're, you're one of the good guys. You just don't do anything wrong. But there is a power in this. In fact, um, the, uh, one of the lexicons that I read, in fact, it's here in my notes somewhere, but I'm going to spend an hour looking for it. Um, it originally comes from the idea of masculine valor right? So there's power in this. This is goodness that has oomph behind it, right? There's something powerful about this. There's something influential about this. When someone who is genuinely virtuous, who's genuinely good, comes into the room, there is a power. There's an 
use the word aura if you want to. I don't want to get into weirdness, all right? But there's something that surrounds them that comes. And so there's an idea, I think, that is misrepresented in people's thought that if you're, if you're one of the good guys, you're kind of weak, right? It's the bad guys. They're the ones that are willing to go out there and fight. They're the ones that have got the power. But the reality is the devil's already lost. So if you're following the bad side, you are weak. You've got to bluster and boast to make everybody think that you're tough, right? I like to give the example of my stepdad. Uh, he wasn't uh, a Christian by any means, but he had a great deal of self-possession. Do you know what I mean by that? Right? So there are people who believe they have to talk all the time, puff their chest out, push their way around in order to get people to listen to them, right? In order to, you know, get through life, essentially, all right? Small man complex, you call it. Well, you don't have to be physically, literally small to have a small man complex. I've seen plenty of big guys that still have this idea in their head that requires them to beat other people up or hurt other people, right? I've seen people shorter of stature that have the very confidence that I'm talking about right now. Um, but my stepdad... Six feet tall, weighed about 250 pounds, never lifted a weight in his life, naturally, ridiculously strong. And when he was younger, before he met my mom, used to get in fights all the time. In fact, that's what they would do. They would go to bars to try to get into fights. In fact, he and his buddies, he called them his, his buddies, it was him, Little Jim, and Big Jim. Little Jim was a guy that was normal size like me, and Big Jim was a guy that was even bigger than my stepdad. He was about 6'4 and weighed about 285, right? They would go into bars. Again, they're not Christians. They would go into bars and look to start fights. They carried gloves that had the fingers cut out. And they would put those gloves on and fight guys. So he just wasn't scared of anybody. He just wasn't scared of anything. Now, here's the interesting thing. I just never heard him raise his voice, except one time. He just didn't raise his voice. Actually, two times. Two times I can remember him yelling. One time, we're driving along in his truck, his old Ford F-150, green Ford F-1973, green Ford F-150 truck. It's the truck I learned to drive in. That one and a white uh, F-150, 1970 or 71, right? So we're driving along in that truck, and somebody pulled out in front of him, and he yelled, and I thought the windows were going to break. I was a young teenager, and it scared me out of my wits, I thought. And then the other time, I said, I didn't hear him raise his voice. He didn't have to raise his voice. He backhanded me. All I knew was I was standing there talking back to my mom, and the next minute, I was literally on the other side of the room. What just happened to me? And he was standing over me, looking at me, and I was like, I'm not going to move, and I'm not going to talk. He had a lot of self-possession, okay? Now, that came from his physical confidence, physical power. What I'm trying to say is when people have genuine goodness, this kind of virtue that we're talking about, they walk into the room and they have that, right? But it's not coming from their own power, their own capability. It's coming from this transformation that's taking place on the inside, right? So that is something then I think definitely for us to uh, to seek, right? This is moral goodness. 
Do you seek to be morally good? People spend more time convincing themselves and other people that they're good rather than just actually living that out. I'm, well, I'm a good person. I, don't, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and tried to share the gospel with, well, I'm a good person. Why are you trying to convince me of this? Right? Or I'm trying to convince God, well, God, I'm a good person. But if you're a good person, then you're a faith-oriented person. Right? If you're a good person, you're following Jesus. Jesus had somebody that called him good. Right? A lawyer. A lawyer of their day which meant he was a religious lawyer, came up to Jesus one time and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit or earn eternal life? You know what Jesus said? First words out of his mouth. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So I can just imagine Jesus saying, what are you trying to say? If you're genuinely good, people are going to see God in you. That's what we're trying to say here. Okay, And then Jesus, because the man was Jewish, directed him to the commandments. Do the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall, you know, uh, don't, don't bear false witness and so forth. And the man said, oh, I've done this, all of this since I was a, you know, a youth. And then the scripture says in one of the gospels, because this is related in, in several of the synoptics, one of the gospels, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. So apparently, the, you know, the kid was actually honest. This is the, the rich young ruler. It's in all three synoptics, and in one it says he's rich, one it says he's young, and the other it says he's a ruler. So we call him the rich young ruler. We put them all together. So Jesus said, all right, here's what you need to do. Sell everything you own, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow me. What do you think the guy did? No, he was in love with his money. Jesus knows what's got your heart. This guy was moral. He had some arete, but he was not willing to take the next step. So what's the next step here? All right. We're going we're gonna to bypass a bunch of stuff that I had here. Um, the next step is knowledge. Okay. Now, presumably, this is something that you're seeking to receive tonight. Now, I don't know if you skipped over that step in seeking to achieve virtue and try to get up here on the knowledge step. But what you need to understand is that the first step after I have that faith is that I'm seeking to become more like Jesus. And then the next step is that I need to begin to increase my knowledge of the word and my knowledge of the Lord. So this word also refers to perception, not just knowledge uh, of the word and so forth. So growing in knowledge would be then growth in the awareness of God's presence in every situation. I, I teach my kids, my karate kids, um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Here it comes. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. That's knowledge. You're acknowledging, you're keeping him in mind as you go through your daily activities. And this is what corrects us when we're doing stuff that's mundane and boring, when we're doing stuff that's annoying. As I mentioned, you know, last week or a couple weeks ago when I was fixing the toilet upstairs, took three trips to Home Depot to fix the stupid toilet. And it was annoying. 
but I kept getting called back to acknowledge the Lord. Instead of feeling like I'm just doing this myself and I'm doing something I hate, I have to open myself up to the presence of the Lord, whatever I'm doing, right? And there are plenty of things that I do that I hate. I love teaching the word. I love being the pastor of this church. But because it's a small church, I do a million different things that I hate. And that's okay. I'm not trying to be a martyr in front of you. I'm trying to say this helps you and I to be on the same page because I know that you guys are doing things in your personal lives that you don't like as well, that you don't enjoy as well, right? But nonetheless, I can do all of these things with the knowledge that Christ is with me. So it's not just a matter of accumulating more knowledge about the Bible. That's part of this. You do need to learn and grow in knowledge of the Word. But knowledge of the Lord and acknowledging the Lord and having that sense of His presence in your life so that even if you haven't read a verse that helps you understand something, the Lord seems to be leading you in a certain direction and then you seek out somebody that's more knowledgeable of the Word to find out what the Scripture is saying and how it aligns with what, uh, what you are learning and so forth. Then he says, to your knowledge add self-control. Oh, brother, I'm on this step all the time. All right, so this is the, the word enkratia, right? It can also mean temperance, holding your passions and desires, keeping them in hand, right? So one of the virtues of the Stoics was apatheia, which meant to have no passion. In other words, to not let any emotion affect you whatsoever. In fact, that's if you've heard the term stoic, you've probably heard it uh, as a as an adjective referring. Oh, that person is a, you know that's a stoic person. The British idea of the stiff upper lip, pip pip, not being affected by anything at all. You know, the whole world is blowing up around me, but I am a British man. I will not be affected by it. British are very, very stoic in, in many respects, all right? Whereas Americans are, you know, emotional all the time, right? Self-control means that I have my passions under control. Um, in Weiss Word Studies, he, uh, he writes, the word was used of the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. In our culture, Everything is about sensual appetites. We're constantly being sold everything in the world with sex, largely, okay? But we're, we're taught to give in to our appetites, to pursue pleasure, to pursue passion. But this is keeping those things under control. In other words, in part, this means learning to say no to yourself, this is where I think fasting can be valuable, right? There's nothing wrong with food. Now, we can overeat, we can overindulge, surely, but there's nothing wrong with food. God supplied food. Food is good. Food is not bad. When I fast, whether I fast for a meal or I fast for a day or I fast longer, right? If I do a, you know, a bone broth fast or a juice fast or something, I'm learning to say no to me. And that is assists me in saying no to myself in other areas of my life. We need self-control. 
not just knowledge. If we're going to maintain virtue, we've got to have self-control, right? And then he said to that, add, uh, it says steadfastness, I believe, is uh, steadfastness. Yeah, that's the translation in ESV. This is the word hupomone. That literally means to, the, the word in Greek means to hold up under something, right? It's perseverance. This is, I continue to persevere in my faith. I continue to hold on to my faith in God. Um, and I continue to hold on through all of the trials and tribulations and trouble uh, in the world. Okay? So, it literally means to stand up under pressure. We have to stay with it even when we're tempted to give up or give in to the pressure of those around us to turn away and live the same pathetic carnal lives that they fiend to enjoy as they effusively pr praise uh, petty mundane pursuits or boast about vile sexual pleasures. Now I'm going to give an example and I'm not going to use a name. Some of you will know who I'm referring to and I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. But we had a young man in this church for a period of time Wonderful, wonderful young man. Um, a servant who seemed to be trying very hard to honor the Lord and serve the Lord. And very few people knew that prior to coming to Christ, he had been uh, in deeply in the homosexual lifestyle, even as a, a teenager. He had been a teenager. And he came out of that, and he really, really sought to follow the Lord. But he encountered false teaching. Now, he probably doesn't know that I know this, but he encountered false teaching from Christians who said, you know what, you can be gay and be a Christian. Now, you can have homosexual desires and be a Christian. People have a difficult time controlling what their desires and their passions are. Now you understand why we have to have self-control. Right? I mean... I'm constantly dealing personally w with issues related to things not going well or not going the way I want them to go. So I, was, I, I fight with my stupid headphones in the gym all the time. I have gone through so many sets of headphones, and I've got these headphones now, and they're supposed to just, they pair really fast, but they're supposed to keep working, but something inevitably goes wrong. So uh, the other day, one of them wouldn't turn on. It just wouldn't turn on. The only one that would turn on is the one in my deaf ear, so I can barely hear anything. And I'm like, this is so stupid. I just want to work out, man. I just want to work out. So what I have to do, and this is, this is typical Apple stuff, so what I have to do is open the, the case, put them back in the case, close the case, open the case back up, take them back out, put them in my ear, see if that worked. Nope, put them back in the case, and I keep doing this over and over and over, all right? But there's multiple things that have to go on because they're wireless, which means they talk to my phone through Bluetooth. But then I'm getting my music through Apple Music, which means that it's getting it through the internet. Right? The Wi-Fi at Lifetime Fitness inhales vigorously. Right? Does not work. Figure that out and you'll understand what I'm trying to say. Right? It does not work with my watch. Inevitably, the watch wants to go out to the Wi-Fi. And then the Wi-Fi doesn't have an internet connection because probably I have to log in and I haven't, whatever. And instead of the watch saying, oh, there's no internet connection on the Wi-Fi, let's just go to the LTE because I paid an extra $100 to have LTE on the watch. It doesn't. So I have to manually turn off the Wi-Fi so that it will access the LTE and give me, this is stupid, all this stuff I've got to do. So 
today. I'm working out today. I'm, I'm you know, uh, was it today? Or was it yesterday? No, it might have been yesterday. I, I'm working out really, really hard, and all of a sudden, it just goes off. I'm like, okay, I don't, it just won't play. So apparently what's happening is, you know what happened today too? It might have been, it might have been yesterday and today. But apparently what happened is, this is, this is, see, I've had to track this down and figure out all these problems. I don't want to figure these out, but I have to, right? But apparently what happened is it stopped getting an internet connection even from my LTE. So what do I have to do? This is what you do. By the way, you don't have to be technologically savvy. I'm going to tell you the secret to all technology. Turn it off, wait, turn it back on. That is the secret to all technology. Is something wrong? Turn it off. You might even have to unplug it. Wait, plug it back in, and then try it again. So with your, with your Wi-Fi router, Spectrum calls this power cycling. Power cycling, turn it off, wait, turn it back on. So I turned the LTE off, turned it back on. Sure enough, my music comes back on. This is my constant fight. I'm so frustrated. What should I be? I should be calm. I should be trusting the Lord. I shouldn't be worried about that. I'm just, I'm trying to help you to understand this is my thing. But I don't just give into that and say, well, you know, whatever. It should just work. No, I recognize I don't need to be acting like this. But what happens when I encounter a teaching that says, oh, no, that's perfectly acceptable to be a Christian and do that. You could be a Christian and, you know, say bad words and scream and holler and yell like a toddler. It's no problem, right? That's just your orientation, Daryl. Well, it is. That's my temperament. In the flesh, without Jesus, guess what? I'm not without Jesus. So sadly, this young man encountered that particular teaching. And rather than talking to me about it, and we had had many conversations, and he's a wonderful young man, I'm going to say that again. Rather than talking to Craig about it, and he admires Craig like crazy. Craig was a teacher at his school. He writes it on Facebook and says, by the way, I'm just going to go back to pursuing that lifestyle, and I'm still a Christian. Well, he came a few more times to our church. We didn't kick him out or anything like that, but he was in a position of leadership, and I had to say, no, you can't be in a position of leadership. That's just not right. Not acceptable, right? But this is what happens. We don't stick with it. You have to persevere. You can't give up. There are, listen, I've always been, the, my temperament has always been like this. I mean, my mom tells me that I'm like three years old trying to put my boots on and I'm screaming and smashing my boots against the floor because I'm basically just a toddler that never grew up is apparently what happened, Okay. But I have, to, I have to persevere. I have to persevere in that self-control. And so do you, right? Then he says, to that add godliness. This is the word eusebion. It comes from two Greek words, eu, you, which means good, and sebomai, which means to worship. So it literally means that you're living the life of a worshiper, a good worshiper, right? This means that you are a devout person. You're a reverent person. Are you ready for this? This is the opposite of being cynical and sarcastic. Oh, I'm just sarcastic. <laughs> then you don't have this quality. See, that's another thing that we, we say, oh, well, that's fine. That's fine. It's not fine. It's not acceptable. It's really not because it shows a lack of faith. It's the opposite of faith. People that are confident, people that are trusting, people that are faith are not sarcastic. 
Now, when I was younger, I was very sarcastic. In fact, my friends and I used to run each other down all the time and laugh about it. But you know, I, there were times when I would just, I, I had spent time with my three friends and I was like, you know what? I just need time away from you guys. I, we just wore each other out with that, right? So this is the life of a worshiper. That's the kind of life, right? To your kindness, to your godliness, excuse me, brotherly kindness and to your brotherly kindness, love. Brotherly kindness means love for your fellow Christians, Right? This is the famous word Philadelphia, right? That's where we get the, the, the name of the city, the city of brotherly love. Christian character involves reaching out in love to others, especially to those who share faith in Christ. If you don't love your brother and sister whom you do see, how can you say that you love God whom you do not see and in whose image you're made? Listen to what the scripture says, 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. Whoa, 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 back up. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And this is the command we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Frankly, church people can be some of the most unlovable people in the world. People in the world, I understand. They're in, they're in the world, and I don't have to have fellowship with them. <coughs> Right? I don't have to hang out with them. But church people can just be mean. They're supposed to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. So what I choose to do is just I continue to persevere. I continue to pray. It doesn't mean I got to spend all my time with them. It doesn't mean we have to be buddy buddies. right? But I do need to love them. I do need to act in their best interest. And sometimes acting in your best interest may not be what you want or what you like. We all have examples of that. Okay? There's someone who is not sitting with us this evening because we had to act in that person's best interest because their condition was deteriorating, their health was deteriorating, and their family finally got together and got them some help. So that person was picked up by her son uh, and a couple of officers and taken to get some help at a hospital. Now that just, I saw him do it and she was mad. And I knew she would be. And I love this lady. But at some point, when people are being self-destructive, you have to step in. You have to do an intervention. You do it with your kids. Right? I believe very strongly in self-determination. I've said this over and over in this church. To the degree that I let this lady stay in her car in 100 degree plus heat outside of our church and watch that deterioration happen not knowing what to do, but continuing to pray, right? This is an example of tough love. This isn't hatred. I don't want to divorce myself of this person, right? I don't want to belittle them. I want them to stop harming themselves. So when someone steps in and they share with you, hey, you need to do this or you need to do that, be wise and receive that. It may not be what you want to hear, but that's brotherly kindness, right? And then the last word that is used is love. This is the, the, the famed Greek word agape. It is exemplified and it culminates in, it finds its full realization in the death of Jesus on the cross, okay? It's not that we love God, but that he loved up us and gave his son as the, as the, the sacrifice for our sins, right? 
For God so loved the world. This is the verbal form of this word agape. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what we're talking about. It is acting, truly acting in the best interest of the person that you love. Right? When Jesus said, love your enemies, this is what he was talking about. So we love our neighbor. We love the stranger. We even love our enemies. We love those who once were our friends and betrayed us. But that doesn't mean that we trust all of these people, that we want to hang out with these people. We simply elect to act in their best interest, and that's love. Now, when we're pursuing these qualities, he says, if these are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the negative, he's saying, if you do these, you will not be stuck. But in the positive, he's saying, if you do these, you will be productive. That's why I said these are steps to being successful spiritually. Right? So take a look at these. Maybe even think about memorizing these and start looking at developing these qualities. Amen? Amen. All right. That's that for the evening. I appreciate you guys.